Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. So go to expressvpn.com slash gold now and get an extra three months free off a one-year subscription package. All of the U.S. stock market averages finish broadly higher on the day, ignoring news that the U.S. economy is getting weaker as inflation gets stronger. The Dow Jones was up about eight-tenths of 1%. It added 264 points. The S&P 500, a little stronger, up almost a full percent, 0.95. Not quite as much strength with the NASDAQ, only up 0.67%. But the strongest index of the day was the Russell 2000, which added almost 1.6%. Now, all four of those indexes started the day significantly in the red, following the pre-market warning from Target. Now, this is the second time in three weeks that Target has warned investors that its earnings would be lower than it expected. And in fact, the culprit now is a 43% surge in their inventories. And now Target is saying that they may have to slash prices in order to move some of this inventory, like big screen TVs or outdoor furniture or whatever they loaded up on, assuming that the consumer had a lot more purchasing power than he actually had. You see, during the COVID lockdowns, when consumers were flush because they had all their stimulus checks, so they were all out shopping and Target incorrectly assumed that that temporary COVID demand would continue. And so they bought more inventory that now they can't sell. Now, there's two reasons why they can't sell it. One is that their customers just don't have enough money left over because they've spent so much money 
on food, on energy, on rent, on insurance, on all the necessities that are getting much more expensive. And so after buying those more expensive necessities, the target customers simply don't have enough purchasing power left over to afford to buy those more expensive discretionary items. And those are the items that are now piling up unsold on target shelves. And so they have to reduce prices. Although another reason why some of those products are not moving is because those prices are also higher. So inflation has driven up food and energy prices and other necessities, which is depleting the income that consumers have to buy these other items, which are also more expensive as a result of inflation. Now, I think a lot of people jumped to the wrong conclusion when they heard this news that, oh, this means that inflation is going to come down because, see, Target now has to start cutting prices, and so that's going to help bring inflation down. That is the wrong read because these price cuts are only going to be temporary because what's going to happen is Target realizing its mistake now it has too much of the stuff that consumers can't afford it is going to reduce that but in the future target is not going to be carrying nearly as much inventory as it was in the past and so that means once they blow out this merchandise what's left is going to be a lot more expensive so if you do want to buy these items in target in the future Target's not going to have nearly as much inventory. And so what they have, they're going to be selling at a much higher price. In fact, I'm not even sure why they're in such a hurry to slash their prices now to get rid of this stuff. Why not sell it slowly at higher prices, especially since the cost of replacing what they're about to put on sale could be very high. So I'm not really sure what's behind this decision. I think it's a poor one, but I think it doesn't bode well for lower inflation in the future. In fact, I think it's the opposite. And what's going to happen in the present is because Target is not making as much money selling long furniture or TVs because its customers are blowing all their money buying food and so they don't have anything left over for these other items. What Target's going to do is have bigger price increases on food and the other items that customers are buying. Because the way I think Target's business model may have worked is they kind of looked at food as more of a loss leader just to get customers in the door. And then when they bought their groceries, they would also buy these more expensive, higher margin items. Well, if they're not selling those items and Target becomes more of a grocery store, then they've got to make their money on groceries. And so they got to charge higher prices. And which probably means their competitors now will be able to raise their prices because they might have had some pressure from Target, which was keeping prices low, to try to sell other merchandise. If now they're jacking up the price of food, well, everybody else can do the same thing. So I think in the short run, what you're going to see is even higher inflation when you're looking at the headline numbers. Now, maybe some of these core numbers, when you strip out the all-important food and energy, maybe they'll be a little lighter because maybe some other companies like Target are going to have some sales. In fact, there may be some other shops that have going out of business sales. And so that's good in the short run because as some of these retailers are going out of business, well, yes, they, they cut prices. But once they're no longer in business, 
Now their competitors can raise prices because there's less competition in the market. So you get a one-time benefit that a lot of people might misinterpret as meaning, oh, see, the inflation problem is over. No, it's the lull before the inflation storm. It means it's going to get bigger. But you know, another storm that's brewing in these numbers is the impact on GDP. Because one of the reasons that GDP in recent quarters, not counting the last quarter, but some of the recent increases in GDP have been powered by an inventory bill. Companies like Target have been building up their inventory. Well, obviously, they miscalculated. They built up their inventory too much. They bought stuff that their customers can't afford to buy. And so what that means in the future is they're not going to be building inventories. They're going to be depleting inventories. And inventory build is a big component to the GDP. And so in the future, we're going to see some negative effects on GDP from a depletion of inventories because companies are not going to be spending money to build their inventories. That's a sign that the economy is either rapidly headed for recession or more likely already in a recession right now. In fact, as I predicted on my last podcast, the Atlanta Fed today again downwardly revised its estimate for Q2 GDP to just 0.9. So now below 1%. Remember, we were down 1.5% in Q1. So if the Atlanta Fed is right and we have plus 0.9, that means for the first half of the year, the economy will have contracted by 0.6%. Now, that seems like a recession to me, even if technically one of the quarters was positive growth, the average of two quarters will be negative growth. But I still think there's a good chance that the second quarter is going to end up being another negative quarter, meaning that the entire time the Fed has been talking about this super strong economy, the very economy they've been talking about is actually so weak that it's in recession. In fact, we got more economic news today that further confirms how weak the economy is and also explains why Target and other retailers are having such a hard time selling their products. Consumer credit for April was released and it was way above estimates. They were looking for $31.7 billion and instead we increased by $38 billion. That was above even the high range of estimates. Now, we did revise down last month's shockingly large all-time record high $52.4 billion increase in the month of March to $47.4 billion, but that's still a huge number. But when you add the downwardly revised March number to the April number that came out well above estimates, you still have a larger increase in consumer credit than investors had anticipated. And one of the worst parts of the report was credit card debt. That soared by $17.8 billion in April. That was the second biggest monthly increase in credit card debt ever. The biggest increase being the month before, in March, when credit card debt grew by a staggering $25.6 billion, an all-time record. These numbers completely prove that everything Joe Biden said last week about how strong the U.S. economy was, how the U.S. consumer is in great shape, how households have more income and more savings and they're in better shape. These numbers show that they are in desperate straits. Consumers are tapped out. Whatever savings they managed to accumulate during the pandemic when their pockets were filled up with stimulus checks, 
They've already blown through that money. And now they're maxing out their credit cards. But what are we buying? Well, we know from Target's report today, they're not buying the big ticket discretionary items. They're buying food. They're buying energy. And how are they getting the money to pay for more expensive food and energy? Well, they're charging it on their credit cards. And after all, if consumers are spending more on rent because their rents have gone up or more on their mortgages because maybe they had an adjustable rate mortgage and that's gone up, well, they have less money left over to buy food and energy. And so more of those costs are going to be covered by using their credit cards. And so credit card debt is maxing out, but it's maxing out on all the wrong purchases. I mean, it's one thing if you use your credit card to buy a new TV because you can enjoy that TV for maybe five or 10 years, maybe more, who knows. But when you use your credit card to buy your groceries for the week or to fill up your car with gas, that stuff is consumed right away and then it needs to be replaced. And how can you afford to replace it? You can't because you couldn't afford the money to buy it in the first place. So now you got to go even deeper into debt to buy more. And the fact that consumers are broke and depending more than ever before on credit card debt just to eat and heat their homes or pay their rent, we got the information on the April trade deficit in goods and services. And this actually came in below estimates, which is good news. They were looking for a $90.2 billion deficit in April. Instead, we only got $87.1 billion, which is still a horrific number. It is an enormous number. It indicates how completely imbalanced the U.S. economy is thanks to years and years, in fact, decades of artificially low interest rates and not enough investment in plant equipment and too much speculating and too much consumption. And last month's $109.8 billion record monthly trade deficit was revised slightly lower to $107.7 billion. Now, this will improve somewhat the GDP numbers in the second quarter, But I think more important is why is the trade deficit coming down? It's not because we have an export boom in this country and we're just selling more stuff because we have such a super strong economy that's producing stuff. I think what's happening is that consumers are too broke to afford to buy the imports. And so they're not importing as much. That's what Target was telling us today With their reduced earnings, consumers aren't buying these big ticket items that are being imported. They're buying more of the stuff we produce ourselves, which is food, right? So they're spending more money on domestically produced food. And so they don't have as much money left over to buy internationally produced consumer electronics or lawn furniture or whatever else they can no longer sell because Americans are too broke to buy. And so I think the reduction in real consumer spending will be a bigger drag on GDP in the second quarter than will a slightly smaller trade deficit be an ad. Remember, consumers might be spending more money, but they're buying a lot less stuff because they're spending more money on more expensive food, energy and rent and other things. And so as that discretionary spending dries up, a lot of the jobs are going to dry up along with it. I'm sure companies like Target and other retailers that are not selling as much stuff pretty soon they're going to be laying off workers because they don't have the revenue to support those jobs. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your laptop exposed at the coffee shop while you run to the bathroom. Sure, most of the time you're probably fine. Until one day you come out of the bathroom and your laptop is gone. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, whether in a cafe, a hotel, or an airport, any hacker using the same network can gain access to your personal data, your passwords, information on financial accounts, and it doesn't take much technical knowledge either to hack. Just some cheap hardware is all that's required. Any smart 12-year-old can probably do it. Your data is valuable, and hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling that personal information on the dark web. That's why it's time to put a layer of protection between your device and the internet. That way, hackers can't steal your sensitive data. That's why I use ExpressVPN and recommend that you do too. Just go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. ExpressVPN is super secure. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past their encryption. And it's easy to use. Just fire up the app and click one button to get protection. And it works on all your devices, your phone, laptop, tablets, and more. So you can stay secure whenever you go online. And an added benefit, one that is particularly valuable to me, is that content providers don't know where you are when you access their content so they can't restrict its availability. I live in Puerto Rico and there's a lot of content that is not available to people in Puerto Rico. But when I'm using ExpressVPN and those content providers think I'm viewing their content from Florida instead of Puerto Rico, then I gain access to a lot of websites that I otherwise would be denied access. So start securing your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com gold. That's expressvpn, 
expressvpn.com slash gold and get an extra three months free off your one-year subscription package. Now, the fact that American consumers are having to cut back on their spending because of higher-priced food and energy and other necessities should not come as a surprise to anybody who listens to this podcast because that's what I was predicting. In fact, all of last year, I was saying that this was going to happen, that it was going to be inflation that was going to cause the recession. And therefore, if the government tried to fight a recession by creating more inflation, which is the only way it fights recessions, it would make it worse. In fact, if you listen to all of the programs that the Biden administration is proposing to fight inflation, they all involve increasing government spending. How do you put out an inflation fire by pouring gasoline on it? The problem is too much spending. We're spending money that we didn't earn. We're spending money that the Fed prints. We have to reduce spending, including the government. In fact, especially the government. Government spending has to come down if we want to make any headway in an inflation fight. If we're simply going to find ways for the government to spend more, we're going to make the inflation problem that Biden thinks he's going to solve even worse. And in fact, as I said at the very beginning of this podcast, not only did we get more evidence that the economy is much weaker than everybody believes, but we continue to get evidence that the inflation problem is getting worse, not better. Oil again today traded above $120 a barrel. It looks like they settled it back below. It was trading above at the end of the day, but now I'm looking at my screen a couple of hours after the markets closed, and I see we're settling the contract at 119.41, but we are headed well above $120 a barrel. In fact, if you look at the strongest stocks today, they were the oil stocks across the board. Almost every oil stock hit new multi-year highs today. Some hit all-time record highs. In fact, I remember I was pounding the table on these oil stocks, especially when the price of oil got negative briefly back in 2020. Now, a lot of people were more interested in buying these COVID stay-at-home stocks. And while those were good trades, if you still own those stocks, you're losing money. In contrast, if you followed my advice and bought energy stocks, you are doing extremely well. All those stocks are up anywhere from triple on the low end to 10 times. In fact, one of the oil stocks that I own in my personal account is actually up 20 times from its March 2020 low, 20 fold. Now I'm kicking myself because that's not one of the stocks that I added to back in 2020. I did buy a lot more energy stocks in my own account, but for some reason I just didn't add to that position figures that was the best performer. But all of these stocks have done extremely well. And that's why we have overweighted this sector in our customer accounts. Wish we had even gone to a bigger overweight with the benefit of hindsight. That's clearly what we should have done. Oil is the second biggest part of my personal portfolio, oil and alternative energy. The biggest part is mining especially precious metals. And that's the area where I've been disappointed so far because I haven't seen the type of returns that I expect. But I continue to expect those returns. In fact, I'm convinced now that I'm going to make even more money in that sector than I originally thought. The reason we haven't already seen the returns is because all of the investors out there, that first, they didn't think we had enough inflation. Then they thought the high inflation was transitory. 
Now they think that high inflation has peaked. They think the Fed has already solved the problem, even though it's just getting started. Everybody is talking about peak inflation, peak inflation. How could you possibly be talking about peak inflation when high inflation is brand new? Nobody was even talking about inflation until last year. That's when it's been a problem. Now, I've been warning about it for more than a decade, but everybody else has been dismissing it. In fact, the only thing the Fed warned about was an absence of inflation. They told us we didn't have enough inflation and they were trying to solve that problem. Now, all of a sudden, we've got too much and it's peak inflation. How is that possible? You know, it would be like going back to the 1970s and listening to people talking about peak inflation in 1970. After all, inflation in 1970 was quite a bit higher than it was in the mid to late 1960s. We had like a spike up in inflation into 1970, and maybe people could have talked about peak inflation then, except inflation didn't actually peak for another decade. That's what we're more likely experiencing now. This is trough inflation, not peak inflation, We are just getting started. The fact that so many people think it's already over just proves to me how much more inflation is in the pipeline, how much higher prices are going to go, including these oil prices that I'm talking about. And in fact, if you look at energy stocks and U.S. stocks, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, I happen to own all three of those stocks. Personally, there are other stocks. Again, I'm not recommending them. I'm just pointing them out for illustration purposes, but they all hit new highs. Yet despite energy stocks doing so well, they only represent about 4% of the value of the S&P 500. Now, obviously, there are a lot of energy companies that are not large enough to be part of the S&P 500 right now, But I think that is going to change. If you go back to 1980, which was peak inflation, right? It wasn't peak inflation in 1970, but 1980 was peak inflation. That was the high watermark for the CPI. It rose by 13.5% in one year. Now, last year, if we actually measured inflation the same way we did in 1980, prices would have gone up by more than that. So we've already had a year of inflation that eclipsed the highest year that we had during the inflationary decade of the 1970s. But in 1980, oil peaked out at 29% of the S&P 500, just below 30%. Now, in 1970, when that decade began, oil stocks comprised just 12% of the S&P. So almost a triple in the relative weighting of oil stocks in the S&P over that 10-year period. It's my guess that by the time we eventually get to peak inflation, and we will at some point, we're nowhere near peak inflation right now, despite the fact that's all anybody can talk about. But when we do get peak inflation, I would expect to see oil companies representing somewhere between 12% and 30% of the S&P 500. Now, if we're only 4% now, that is a huge increase in the relative weighting of oil in the S&P. Now, how would that happen? How would we get to that point? Well, number one, a lot of the oil companies that are now too small to be in the S&P 500, when oil is $200, $300 a barrel, and these companies are generating more profits, then their values, their market caps are going to be higher, and they're now going to exceed some of the other companies that are currently in the S&P 500 that are going to get booted out. 
Maybe there's a lot of technology companies that are in there right now that will no longer be there by the time we reach peak inflation. So by the time we do reach peak inflation, the way we reached it in 1980, except it's going to be a much higher peak. But when we get there, we're going to have a lot more energy stocks in the S&P 500 than we have now. And their market caps are going to be much larger. And so you're going to see a much bigger weighting. In fact, I remember when I first took my Series 7 exam, it was around 1989. And energy stocks were not 29% of the S&P. I think they were closer to 20% by then. So they were way off their peak, but it was still high. And I remember one of the questions on the Series 7 exam that I had It said, you're a broker and one of your clients believes that oil prices are going to go way up. What investment recommendation should you give him? And the correct answer, because it was multiple guess, but the correct answer was buy an S&P 500 index fund. Now, personally, I never thought that that was the best recommendation because if I had a client who really believed oil prices were going to go up, I would have that client buy a basket of oil stocks or maybe an oil stock ETF. I'm not sure that they really had ETFs back then, but if they did, I would want to concentrate on energy stocks. But the correct answer was the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 was so heavily weighted in energy stocks that that's what the people who prepared this exam thought was the best recommendation if you think energy prices are going to go up, even though higher energy prices would actually hurt some of the other stocks that were in the S&P 500. That's why I didn't like that particular answer, but that was the answer. And you know, when I saw it on a practice test, I memorized it, and then I got that exact question on the real exam, and so I knew the answer, even though I personally didn't believe that the S&P 500 was the best way to get exposure, given the limited choices that we had, I guess that was the least wrong answer that you could check. In fact, I haven't taken a Series 7 exam in quite some time, but I can imagine that if they had a similar question today, it wouldn't be about a client bullish on oil. It would be bullish on technology. Because I think right now, technology represents about 28% of the S&P 500. So it's almost where oil was in 1980. So if you had a client that was very bullish on tech, you could buy the S&P 500 index fund. But of course, that's one of the reasons that I do not recommend the S&P 500 because it's so heavily weighted in technology and so underweighted in energy. In fact, I think by the time we do get to peak inflation, that energy will represent a larger percentage of the S&P than technology does now. And that has major implications. I mean, not just for investment returns, which are obviously going to be very bad for people who are investing in the rearview mirror, but it also has major implications for the U.S. economy because the U.S. economy is going to look very different in a world where energy is a bigger portion of the S&P 500 than technology. I want to circle back, though, and talk a little bit more about consumer debt, not credit card debt, but student debt, because that's also on the rise. And one of the reasons is the moral hazard implicit with all this talk about debt forgiveness. And that's one of the many reasons that I've been opposed to this plan from the beginning is that it encourages people to take on even more debt. Because if you know you're not going to have to pay the money back, if you know your debt is going to be forgiven, 
well, then you might as well go out and borrow money. In fact, some people who might have actually paid for college because they didn't need to borrow money, now they're going to go borrow the money anyway. Because if you're going to get your debt forgiven, well, you're going to get college for free. So why pay for something that you can get for free? But I read this article that was supposed to be calling attention to the fact that Biden's current plan of only forgiving $10,000 worth of student debt is not enough, that we need to forgive a lot more. And here's this headline from a Business Insider article. Quote, meet a teacher with $303,000 in student debt who says Biden's $10,000 loan forgiveness plan is not even a drop in the bucket. Think about that. I mean, first of all, I don't even know if I believe this teacher. I don't know if the reporter completely vetted this story because to me, it seems impossible that a teacher could be so much in debt. The craziest part about this story, though, is that she's 53 years old. Now, if she hasn't paid off her college loans at 53, she's obviously not going to pay them off. And of course, she couldn't have borrowed anywhere near this amount of money to get her undergraduate degree because they didn't cost that much, you know, 30 years ago when she was in college. Now, she probably went back to school to get her master's degree. So maybe a lot of the debt was associated with her master's degree in education. But how can anybody possibly borrow so much money and spend so much money to get a master's degree in education? Because it's not like you earn that much money. People do borrow a lot of money to get a medical degree because doctors can earn a lot of money. And so maybe it's worth the cost. But there's no way a master's degree in education can possibly be worth what this individual paid. Now, she did mention that a lot of this has to do with interest. Maybe she wasn't paying for a while, and so the interest was compounding. But think about that. A math teacher with a master's degree at age 53 is still carrying $303,000 in student debt. Now, the real problem is, how is this possible? How could this person have borrowed all this money? Because it never could happen in a free market. There is no way that any private lender would lend an aspiring math teacher or then a math teacher trying to get a master's degree all this money because any banker would realize that there's no way that this person is going to repay these loans. So how is it possible, assuming that this person is telling the truth? Well, the only way it's possible is because of government. It's only because the government was guaranteeing student loans that students could borrow all this money or people going back to school to get master's degrees could borrow so much money. But for those government guarantees, nobody would make these loans. And of course, a lot of the loans now come directly from the government. The government couldn't care less whether or not people could repay the loans, and that's why they're made. But in the private sector, lenders know that the most important part of a loan is getting paid back. And they're not going to loan money to people who can't afford to pay it back because then they lose money. And they're not in the business of losing money. They're in the business of making money. But when it comes to the government, they don't care how much money they lose because it's not their money. It's the taxpayer money. And if they lose money, they don't even have to go to the taxpayers directly. They just go to the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve prints the money. And so the taxpayers end up losing through inflation instead of legitimate taxation. Of course, the ultimate irony here is that this woman is a math teacher. 
yet she couldn't do the math on how much money she was borrowing relative to how much money a teacher earns to realize that the numbers just didn't add up. And yet this is the type of individual that we're hiring to teach math to our kids. In fact, you know, I read an unrelated article that also shows you just how little teachers actually know about the subjects they teach. The San Francisco school district decided that they're going to ban the word chief from any of their titles. And the reason they want to take the word chief out is because they claim it's offensive to Native Americans, even though the word chief is used all the time in a positive way, because chief means leader. So when somebody has chief in their title, you're the chief of police, you're the chief financial officer, the chief executive officer, you're the chief economic advisor, you're the chief of staff. Every time the word chief is used, whether in government or in the private sector, it's a good thing. Everybody aspires to be the chief. There is no way that any Native American could possibly be offended by the positive connotation associated with the word chief. But again, chief is not even an Indian word. It's European. It's French. It comes from the word chef. In fact, none of the famous Indian chiefs were called chiefs by the Native Americans. It was American settlers who came to the United States or the colonies at the time. It was the Europeans who decided to call the leaders of the Indian tribes chiefs because they already knew that word. It was a European word, not a Native American word. So how can Native Americans possibly be offended by a word that doesn't even have a Native American origin? Clearly, the members of the San Francisco school board didn't even bother to Google the word chief to see where it comes from before they rushed to show how political correct they were by banning a positive word like chief from their titles. Meanwhile, they're probably doing a lousy job of educating the students, but all they really care about is making sure that the teachers and other administrators don't have titles that somehow they believe are offensive to Native Americans. Instead of worrying about who they're offending, why don't they worry more about educating the kids? But on a totally separate topic, I want to talk a little bit about this article that I read. It was up on Zero Hedge, I believe, and it was explaining one of the reasons for the big increase in rents was the negative blowback left over from the rent moratorium that the government ordered during the COVID lockdowns. And again, I wanted to point this out because this is exactly what I predicted was going to happen the minute the government announced this unconstitutional policy, which I knew was going to backfire and raise rents for the exact reason that people are now writing about. In hindsight, it did. And so what this article pointed out was, number one, that because landlords went so long without collecting rent, they had to hurry up and increase their rents going forward by even more to try to make up for the rent that they didn't collect in the past. That's one of the things I warned was going to happen. But more importantly, what this article pointed out was also something that I warned about was that the mere fact that the government can do this, that the government can simply tell tenants that you don't have to pay your rent and then tell landlords that you can't kick them out, that dramatically increased the risk of being a landlord because now your lease doesn't really mean anything. 
if your tenant could refuse to pay rent and you're legally barred from kicking them out, that is a huge negative for a landlord because you're still responsible for your mortgage if you have one, your maintenance, your property taxes. So you have all the costs, but you have none of the offsetting revenue. This means that being a landlord is much riskier now than it was. And therefore, landlords need to be compensated for taking that risk, assuming the risk that at any moment their tenants can stop paying rent, but still continue to live rent free in the uh, apartment so you have no opportunity to replace that person with somebody who will pay rent. So now as a landlord, you need to price that risk into your rent. And in fact, the people who took advantage of the rent moratorium the most were lower income people. And so it's lower income to moderate income housing that's going to see the most substantial increase because it wasn't the upper end of the market that wasn't paying the rent. Because then if you didn't pay, the landlord could go back and sue you to get the back rent after the moratorium ends. But for lower income people, they're not going to get sued because they have nothing to take. I mean, winning a lawsuit is one thing. The important part is collecting on the judgment. Well, if you don't have any money, well, what good is a judgment if you can't collect? And so these lower income people, they didn't pay their rent, but they spent the money. It's not like they had it aside and the landlord had an ability to go after it. So as a result of this, people who are renting to lower income people need to charge a much higher rent now in order to collect as much money as possible while they're still paying to make up for the potential period where they're not going to collect any rent at all because the government just decides that for every reason, tenants don't have to pay rent. Because when it comes to vote getting, there are a lot more tenants than landlords. And so politicians care about votes, right? They can do that math and they can add up all the tenants and realize that they outnumber the landlords. And so in this democracy, it's the votes of the tenants that are more important than the votes of the landlords. And so when these politicians are looking for votes, well, they know where to get them and that's with a rent moratorium. And so now renters have to pay higher prices as a result of this risk. But also another factor that this article pointed out and another one that I also warned about was that a lot of people are just not going to want to take the risk. It's not worth it anymore. And so a lot of people who had rental units, as soon as they were able to get the tenant out, they're taking those units off the market. Either they're selling them and so they're no longer part of the rental stock or they're converting them to short-term rentals, Airbnbs, because something like that is not as risky because if your tenants are only there for a week or a month, well, then it doesn't matter because you're not going to be locked in. You can replace that tenant with a new tenant. What you don't want is to have a long-term tenant who's going to be living there and then not paying rent and you can't evict them. And so as a result of that, the supply of housing that's available to rent has gone down, which is also putting upward pressure on rent. So this is another example, just like with student loans, where the government has now caused 
college prices to soar, and now the talk about forgiving student loans is causing people to borrow even more money and allowing colleges to raise tuition even faster. But here you have another supposedly well-intentioned government program trying to help out renters by saying, hey, you don't have to pay your rents. Well, it did so much damage to their landlords that they don't want to be landlords anymore. And if they are going to be landlords, they're going to have to charge their tenants much higher rents in order to stay landlords. And again, this has backfired. And it's one of the reasons that people are now seeing these big increases in rents. Of course, the other reasons are purely inflation. The government is creating all this inflation. And as a result, landlords have to pass on those higher prices to their tenants in the form of higher rents. Of course, the government wants to blame the landlords. Oh, you guys are just greedy. You're gouging your poor tenants. They're not being greedy at all. They're just trying to recover their costs and protect our investments. You know, the government always wants to blame the public for inflation. And believe me, the blame game is going to accelerate with rising inflation. That's what they did in the 1970s. That whole campaign, whip inflation now, that we had under Gerald Ford, W-I-N, those win buttons. The reason that they had those buttons out there is because the Ford administration wanted the public to believe that they were responsible for inflation and they could whip inflation if they just did the right thing. So the government said, if you're a business, help us whip inflation, don't raise your prices. If you're a worker, help us whip inflation, don't demand a pay raise. If you're a consumer, be a better shopper. Look for lower prices. Don't just pay a higher price refuse to pay. And if we all work together, employers, employees, consumers, we could whip inflation. Well, they can't because inflation's got nothing to do with employers, employees, or consumers. It's all about the government. The government creates inflation and it's only the government that can whip it. The public is being whipped by inflation and it's the government that's holding that whip and they're cracking it on everybody's back. If government wants to get rid of inflation, They can do it whenever they want. They just have to stop printing money. They have to cut government spending. But the problem is they don't want to do that. They want to keep on creating inflation, yet they want to keep on blaming it on the private sector. 